This is Macro Horizons, episode 36. Santa Paws is coming to town. Again. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 16th. And no, it's never too early to start listening to holiday music. After all, we never took the lights down. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, 143 tens. Thanks for the memories. Certainly has been a relatively bearish stretch for the treasury market, and to some extent that's very consistent with the seasonal patterns that we've been on about, but it's also reflective of what has gone on in terms of the shift in sentiment regarding the global outlook. Part of that has been a function of dialing back some of the trade war rhetoric, but we've also seen the domestic data continue apace. Now, let us not forget we have seen some of the sentiment data, most notably ISM manufacturing, continue to deteriorate. But this last week, we did have better than expected core CPI, better than expected retail sales, as well as a genuine sense that the ECB is moving quickly enough as to avert a deeper recession in Europe, which implies the probability that the U.S. imports a recession is lower. The ECB did cut 10 basis points to negative 50 for the policy rate. They also entered into bond buying once again. The Fed is expected to follow suit, at least with another rate cut in the week ahead, which does lead to the question, why has the market backed up as much as it has? And while the curve re-steepening tends to fall intuitively with a Fed that is proactive in trying to encourage inflation and ensure against an economic slowdown domestically, I think it's safe to say that the severity of the move has caught many in the market off guard. We continue to see the prospects for a 2% 10-year yield or above during the fourth quarter. The biggest struggle that we are having at the moment is how far do we anticipate the current bearishness can run? One of the key levels that we were watching for a breach of was 180 in 10s. We're through that. The next level that really starts to matter is 194 which was a breakout level from early August. In terms of the 2's 10's yield curve, after falling as low as negative 7 basis points, the curve has re-steepened by more than 15 basis points. There's a big question of whether or not Powell is going to be able to effectively communicate where we stand at the moment in terms of monetary policy next week. If he doesn't, instill confidence that the Fed is going to act aggressively enough to prevent a recession, 
then the risk is that the curve begins to re-invert. That's not our base case scenario, however. We actually expect that the chair will do an effective job of communicating that the committee is comfortable letting inflation run hot for even longer than previously anticipated. That in and of itself should re-steepen the curve, especially if the Fed leaves open the possibility for another 25 basis point rate cut by the end of the year. The equity market put in an impressive performance in the week just past, and in doing so, it offers the Fed a little bit more wiggle room in terms of a disappointment for risk assets. So in the event that the Fed does want to scale back some of the more aggressive pricing in of future rate cuts that we currently see, at the risk of a sell-off in equities, Powell has to be content that that is coming near the record highs rather than as far off as we were earlier this year. So QE is back. QE is back. Well, at least in Europe and in a amount that was pretty much in line with expectations. What was fascinating about the ECB's meeting wasn't the fact that they cut rates to negative 50 basis points, but rather the market's response. The first leg made sense to me. We saw a reasonable rally that translated into the treasury market. Ten-year yields dropped, call it seven to eight basis points. And that's despite the fact that we had a stronger than expected core CPI print for the third month in a row. The market's ability to simply ignore inflation, I think, was telling. But what really left me a bit perplexed was the move in boon yields. John, what did you think? I think when you dive into it, it actually makes a little more intuitive sense. To me, a textbook dovish monetary policy impulse is lower real yields, higher inflation compensation. And after the dust settled in the boon market, what you saw was exactly that. Perhaps counterintuitively, the inflationary impulse from the ECB was sufficient to push nominal boon yields back to little changed on the day. But we still saw higher market-based measures of inflation expectations, tighter peripheral spreads, BTBs narrowed 10, 15 basis points to German. To me, on net, that's still very dovish, even if the overall level of rates was a little bit flatter on net. So what did you make of some bearish pressure in the very front end of the German curve? Oh, the tiering issue. This was a super interesting development. The way that the ECB is structuring their tiering is they're going to remunerate six times required reserves at 0%. So say required reserves are $100 billion, you can put up to $600 billion in at the ECB at 0%. So then why take negative rates on two-year German bonds? Well, that's exactly what happened. If you're looking at negative 80 basis points at the two-year shats, you can get out of that contract position to eventually go into reserves. Makes perfect sense, and we should expect this to play out. But as a result, you actually saw some front-end euro yields pop higher by as much as 10, 15 basis points. But I thought they cut. Oh, it's Europe. And this is part of the difficulty with negative rates and the importance of some of the mechanics and plumbing here. And it is a little counterintuitive. You look at two-year German yields 10 basis points higher after they cut rates as expected. That's weird. Well, the net takeaway was still 10-year Treasury yields at 175, which is helping define the upper end of the range. I'm still focused on the relatively benign response in the Treasury market to the inflation figures. The idea that we are finally seeing that late cycle spike in inflation certainly resonates. And 
I'll make the case that it might be too little too late. If for no other reason, then the Fed has already started cutting and is expected to cut again on Wednesday. And this is a really important development. The highest year-over-year core CPI read since September 2008 is a pretty important bullet point in determining what shape the mid-cycle adjustment is going to take. We've talked a lot about whether it will be the 75 basis points, reminiscent of the 90s experience, with inflation at 2.4% year-over-year. You have to think that that is a welcome development for the hawkish side of the committee. What I think is more relevant is if the Fed is going to actively try to recast the market's perception of the way they're going to address inflation going forward, which in and of itself implies perhaps the return of term premium to the treasury market, then cutting in the wake of three higher than expected core inflation prints is a very good start. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. Three-month annualized core CPI is 3.4%. 10-year break-evens are less than half of that at 1.6. That's not going to end well, and it's not going to end well in one of two directions, right? Either you're going to get that term premium spike, that push-up in inflation compensation across the curve, you're going to see higher rates and steeper twos, tens, and 530s, or this is the late-cycle push. You mentioned that September 2008 was the last time we saw core year-over-year inflation here. That wasn't exactly a moment to start hiking rates. Another interpretation of what's going on in the break-even market is an acknowledgement that while we tend to think, and it's certainly priced off of domestic CPI, the fact of the matter is that part of the market is apparently trading more off of global inflation expectations than what we're seeing domestically. Now, I know that's a bit of a departure from the intuition behind how the tips market should trade, but bear with me here. Given the sensitivity of front-end tips to oil and gasoline prices, if in fact what we're seeing now is a ratcheting lower of global growth expectations with the implicit flagging of demand on commodities, oil being chief among them, one might reasonably expect that over the course of the medium run that break-evens as measured by tips are actually incorporating some of the global downturn as a result. And you can see that play out. One of the charts I look at is how extraordinarily correlated five-year, five-year euro and dollar inflation swaps are. It almost looks like you're staring at the same figure at moments. And a follow-on thought here is if that creates kind of some structural downside in break-evens or market-based measures of inflation compensation, that would actually lead to a structurally lower or arguably negative term premia going forward. So It's kind of back to that question of how far can 10s and 30s back up? Sure, we might even be getting some solid current inflation data now, but if investors aren't demanding that much protection going forward, it's going to be really hard to see 10 and 30-year yields challenge 250 to say nothing to 3%. And we've made it this far without even mentioning the big event this week, our own central bank. Well, the Fed's going to cut 25 basis points. That much I'm pretty reasonably certain about. The big question in my mind, at least, is how do they change their dot plot and the forward projections of growth and inflation? It's difficult to argue that we won't continue to see downward pressure on the unemployment rate. That one's a bit easy. Core inflation is probably assumed to be at 2%, and that's obviously based on appropriate monetary policy. But what happens with growth and how much is the Fed willing to pre-commit to future rate cuts in 2019 via a lowering of the dots? I think this offers a good time for a John Splainable moment around the dots. 
So the dots are obviously going to be in core focus. And uh, something that I've been debating internally is how seriously should we take these forecasts? And one way to rephrase that is, well, why don't we take a step back and think of what the historical error bands around Fed funds projections might be. So sure, 2019 will probably signal an additional cut as the median, but say, look at 2020, how seriously should we take that? It turns out empirically, the error bands are pretty massive. Looking at the June FOMC dots, it was 70 basis points in a one standard deviation error for 2019 itself. So what that means is in June, there was a 70 basis point, one standard deviation error band around the median. Okay, so they said flat back in June, plus or minus 70 basis points, and that's only with 70% conviction. If you go out to two standard deviations in 2020, you're seriously saying with 95% likelihood, Fed funds is going to be between 0 and 6%. That's not actually helpful. And it's important at this moment to realize what the dot plot is. The dot plot, as you noted, Ian, is FOMC members indicating what they perceive the appropriate stance of policy to be if their economic forecasts play out. We don't know how the Phillips curve works anymore. It's hard to think about trade policy in this era. And there are just a ton of moving pieces. So you can only have as much conviction about your dot as you do your economic forecast, which you shouldn't have very much in at all, because the name of the game at this point is uncertainty. So there's going to be a ton of focus on the 2019, 2020, 2021 dots. But I guess my point is, maybe just take this as like a general bias. You know, Do they want to continue to lower rates, or do they want to go flat forward? Don't interpret this as, oh, the Fed calls for one or two more cuts. The reality is, in this world of uncertainty with these huge error bands around these estimates, we don't know how it's going to play out, and neither does the FOMC. So the best that we could actually hope for is the Fed communicating whether or not they would like to keep rates stable unless things deteriorate further. And I think that that fits very well in with the idea that if the Fed is going to start slowing the pace of rate cuts, or if 50 or 75 basis points in aggregate easing is enough, that Powell will need to start signaling to the market in very short order that they're rethinking future rate cuts. And that's a pretty substantial divergence from what we've been saying pretty much all year, which is as Powell gets to the stand, he's going to want to outdove the doves once again. We've now reached a point where that's not a foregone conclusion. In fact, he may want to outhawk the doves. Or underdove the doves. So delivering a hawkish cut, as ironic as that sounds, may actually be what the committee would like to do in order to walk back the extreme expectations and kind of lay the groundwork for something a bit more moderate in terms of an easing campaign. Yeah, after all, I can easily see a scenario play out where the Fed cuts in September, say they cut again in December, that could send their 75, and then they're back to a pause. We'll start saying Santa pause again. And the expectation then is the target range just kind of drifts in that 150 to 175 range for the foreseeable future. And that's not crazy. Like, as we talked about, three-month annualized core inflation is at 3.4%. Sure, say it moderates into the twos. We still have a tight labor market if inflation is rebounding. And you could imagine a scenario where in Q4 or Q1, the Trump administration comes to an agreement with China in order to boost consumer sentiment and equity valuations going into the election, that all kind of keeps the Fed on hold, it seems to me, if not moves back into a hiking campaign, though I still think we're a very long way away 
from talking about hikes. That is an outcome that you and I have recently been debating. That's the Goldilocks scenario for the Fed. That means that Powell actually nailed it in terms of the preemptive cuts doing exactly what they should. They avert a recession or a more dramatic recession. Financial conditions remain easy. Markets stabilize. We go back to trading the domestic fundamentals as the trade war pressure subsides. And then we find ourselves in March, April of 2020, and everything appears poised to return to above-trend growth. Until, of course, the election. Dare we say soft landing? One of the questions related to the political situation that I've heard a few times is whether or not the current administration and Congress are going to attempt to cobble together another fiscal stimulus plan ahead of the election. Well, I think, of course, they're going to try to cobble it. And we're going to hear discussions about potential tax cuts. Remember that big middle class tax cut that was suddenly talked about last October and then got really quiet? There are other potential ideas that they'll throw out, such as indexing capital gains to inflation. I think they absolutely will try to cobble something together. And this can come in a variety of different forms. Maybe try to push together some payroll tax cut or some adjustments to the tax code. It could be increased infrastructure spending. But one of the difficulties at this point is the Democrats control the House. So you would need to actually get a bipartisan consensus in order to push this. My inner skeptic with how well Washington plays together in the sandbox means we're not going to see this before 2020, though it does make all the sense in the world that the administration will try to put something together and get some things out of the pipeline. The flip side to the argument of the general dysfunction in Washington is the Democrats won't necessarily want to be seen as pushing back against a middle class tax cut or another attempt at an infrastructure spending bill. So the political calculus could get very complicated, especially at the moment where presidential campaigning is going to begin heating up very quickly. So both parties want to cut taxes. Both parties want to spend more money. I mean, one of the positives for that is that definitely creates more treasuries. Which will be great when the Fed ultimately has to shift to a QE program and there's plenty of supply to buy. This was actually a question that popped up this week in the discussion about the ECB returning to QE. How much space is there for the Fed to buy treasuries? And it turns out the answer is a lot. And the reason why is the way the Fed structures their purchases, they limit it to as a percent of outstanding. So say something like 70% of any QCIP, whatever the precise number actually is. Well, with 15, 16 trillion dollars of marketable debt outstanding, if you take 70% of that, you're still looking at 10 plus trillion dollars of treasuries to buy, which would be a quadrupling from where they're at now. So in terms of potential scope for a QE program in the U.S., not that this is imminent. There's a lot of space for the Fed. This is more a constraint on the other side of the Atlantic. And the timing all of this sort of makes sense with some of the softness we've seen in the Treasury market recently. We're now approaching the point at which the peak bullish seasonals are starting to run their course. And this sort of new year optimism, the potential for some sort of fiscal package, or maybe some further optimism on the trade war, could offer a bit of a bearish underpinning to the treasury market and lift rates back toward 2% 10-year yields, 225 10-year yields. So it tis the season for the seasonals. 
In the week ahead, there's really only one event on the horizon that matters, and that's the FOMC meeting. It's widely anticipated that the Fed will deliver another 25 basis point rate cut, so we anticipate very little debate on that front. What we're more concerned about is the significant policy communications risk that the Fed faces at this moment. We're of the mind that if the Fed is going to only deliver a net 75 basis points in rate cuts that Powell is going to need to use the FOMC meeting as the departure point for shifting the market's conversation around how large a fine-tuning series of rate cuts ultimately needs to be. Do they do that via the dot plot? Perhaps, but that issue starts to become quite a bit trickier as we discussed earlier given the error band around those estimates. So it largely comes down to the statement and the press conference. We anticipate that the FOMC statement itself will do a reasonable job of outlining the case to cut, but not how far the Fed is going to be willing to move. Obviously, the phrase act as appropriate will remain in one iteration or another. And as is all too often the case, the knee-jerk response in the market will be a function of a few words within the statement, and of course the beloved dot plot if that sees a revision in either direction. The period between the statement and Powell's press conference will be little more than a drift, and the market will be waiting to see if the Fed is able to strike that delicate balance between we just cut rates, we have a justification for cutting rates, but at the end of the day, we don't see that many more rate cuts on the horizon. How this plays out in the shape of the yield curve adds another level of uncertainty. If the Fed gets it right, then the curve should at least hold the steepening that's in place, if not extend it. In the event that they do pull it off, all of a sudden that 28 basis point range top in twos tens starts to become a more reasonable medium term target. If in fact Powell manages to stumble in the delivery of this nuanced message, the biggest risk then is that the yield curve very quickly shifts back into an inverted stance, particularly with twos tens. Now, Setting aside the recessionary implications for inversion versus not inversion, the inability for the cyclical re-steepening of the curve to really take hold leaves that as one of this year's biggest conundrums, at least for us. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.